everyone, welcome to Wildcat Chats. We're excited for this episode. We have the very awesome Professor Andre Payne with us, who is currently the marketing professor in the business division. That is correct. Welcome. Thank you for being here today. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank I'm you excited. for having me. <laughs> yeah. I, I love the introduction. I need to carry you around with me everywhere so you can just introduce me, <laughs> so, right? Yeah. Get everybody pumped, especially in my, cla- right. my morning classes. Your morning classes. Yeah. How many morning classes do you teach? Uh, just one, just intentionally. One. Uh-huh. I didn't even want to teach that one because I know how students are. I was a student once, mm. and those morning classes are rough. But That's right. I try to be as energetic as possible to get them through it, and so hopefully they're doing okay. Yeah, yeah, that's awesome. Well, anyways, thank you listeners so much for tuning in. Um, today, we're just gonna, we're just gonna have a conversation about Professor Payne's story and, and get to know him a little bit better. So we're gonna start off, would you tell us, Professor Payne, a little bit about yourself, maybe where you're from, um, a little bit about your story. And again, like I was telling you earlier, you can take this whatever direction you'd like. <laughs> yeah, no, so yeah, that so much of a loaded question. Mm-hmm. Um, so where I'm from, so I was born in Panama mm. overseas. Wow. My father was in the Air Force. He was okay. stationed in Panama. And um, I don't remember much about it because yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we weren't there long. Yeah. But that's where I was born. Um, however, I was raised in Anderson, Indiana, Okay. Um, which is probably, what, 30 minutes uh, south of here. Yeah. Yeah. And um, raised in Anderson, Actually, I grew up right across the street from Anderson University. Did you really? Yeah, and I'll bring this thing full circle here in a second. But, um, you know, my formative years have been spent in and around Christian college campuses. So Really? That's uh, interesting. Yeah, I grew up right across the street from Anderson University. Um, normal kid. I, I played sports. Um, love sports, as a matter of fact. Um, mm. I love basketball, but I was naturally gifted in football. Okay. Well, you know it, right? Yep. <laughs> and so I used to practice so hard with basketball, and um, I thought I was going to be like the next Kobe Bryant or whatever, <laughs> Michael Jordan. So I used to practice so hard, but, you know, I was just okay, right? Yeah. I was good enough to make the team. I was just okay. But in football, it was just natural. I started late, but I was really, really good, really, really fast. And so... That's kind of where I started to spend the majority of my time, particularly as I transitioned into high school. Okay. So, um, yeah, so I'm the only child. And so it's interesting because they always talk about the only child being, um, I guess, somewhat selfish. Mm. And nothing could be further from the truth. (laughs) And uh, I think it was more so because I used to love... um, having people over to the house because yeah. I was only child. So sure. I'm like, I'll share whatever I have. You can have it all right. <laughs> I would have all my friends over. So my place became like the place to be, the yeah. hub for uh, all of my friends and some of my family as well. Mm-hmm. And so, um, yeah, I just had a, a really great childhood. Um, grew up, my parents, um, they've been married for 37? Wow, that's 37 exciting. years. So they've been married a long time. Yeah. They got married when they were 19 and 20. Wow. Yeah. And so married a long time. And so it's really interesting. But nevertheless, um, yeah, grew up and, like I said, played sports and went to uh, Highland High School, which is no longer in existence. They shut that school down and they consolidated (laughs) to make it one school. But went to Highland High School, did really well in football there and um, earned several scholarships. And um, at that time, I was trying to decide, okay, where do I want to go? 
And uh, it was interesting because I had a few different options on the table and Taylor ended up calling me like last minute. I'm like, what is Taylor? I've never heard of Taylor. <laughs> I mean, I grew up across the street from Anderson University, never heard of Taylor. Mm, and um, so, you know, Taylor coach called me, kind of explained uh, the university to me. And I'm like, okay, kind of sounds familiar. And so um, he asked if I wanted to, you know, go on a visit. And so my parents thought it would be a good idea to go on a visit. Uh, went on a visit. And it was interesting because I um, got there and I started looking around. It was in the middle of nowhere. And, you know, this is early 2000s and so it was in the middle of cornfields there was no one there that looked like me and I was like mm, I don't think this is gonna be <laughs> it right but as I started to get to know people um, as I was taking my tour around campus rather and started to be introduced to people and um, get to get to know kind of um, the the strong community that they had there um, I kind of started to develop a liking for it and so I walked away uh, being really, really impressed with the people, not impressed with the location. Then I came back for a second visit, and that's where they sold me. And so uh, I ended up deciding Taylor would be the place that I would go. I felt like it would be a place where not only um, my teachers, my professors rather, and um, you know individuals would know me by name. I wouldn't just be a number, like I would be at maybe IU or Purdue or somewhere like that. But... Um, I would also have an opportunity uh, to grow spiritually, uh, which was important to me. You know, mm-hmm. um, growing up, um, you know, I gave my life to Christ at 13 mm-hmm. and um, always was on this quest for knowledge and to learn more about Jesus Christ. But, um, you know, as a teenage boy, you do what teenage boys do, and, <laughs> you know, and so I, I really wasn't um, serious about my faith at that time. And so um, when I got to college, that was an opportunity for me to really focus in on not only my studies, not only football, but also my spiritual life. Mm-hmm. And so um, that's what I did. And um, my first semester there was still rough uh, because although I was focusing on my spiritual life, it was one of those things where I'm in the middle of nowhere. Um, there are very few minorities, let alone African-Americans. Sure. And I'm looking around, no one looks like me. And I'm like, I felt out of sorts. It was almost like a culture shock, so to speak. Mm. And um, it was interesting because I wanted to transfer to Ball State. Mm. I had already talked to some of my friends at Ball State. I mapped out this plan. And I'm like, okay, I pitched it to my parents. I'm like, okay, I'm, I'm pretty sure this is what I want to do. And they were like, well, give it a year. Give it a year, right? <laughs> this is your first semester at the, you know, at the university. Um, give it a year. See what happens. And then after that, if you still want to transfer, then we'll explore that option. And um, I was just like, reluctantly, I gave it a year. And um, after that year, it was amazing. I started to get connected to student-led organizations. I started to develop friendships and after a while, I started thinking, do I really want to start all over again? Yeah. I don't know that I want to transfer somewhere and start all over yeah. again and have to build those relationships. And I was always taught never to um, quit short of the finish line. You know, I, I, I didn't skip steps, and I was a person that never quit anything. Mm-hmm. Um, my parents, every time I would start something, they would say, you have to go through a full cycle until, you know, and once that cycle is over... Like, for example, if it's a sport, go through a whole season. Once that season is over, 
then if you want to be done with it, you can be done with it. You can't quit in the middle. And so that kind of, I think, resonated with me too. And so I was like, okay, I'm going to, I'm, I'm going to stick with it because mm-hmm. I also felt like because there was such a lack of diversity on Taylor's campus, I felt like this would be an opportunity for me to have an impact. Mm-hmm. And I had friends that were at HBCUs and, you know what I mean, different places and just loving it. And I thought, you know what, I could go somewhere else and really um, kind of enjoy myself, fit in with everyone else, and um, really kind of have the college experience that I anticipated having. Or I could stay here, continue on my quest to develop spiritually, continue on my quest to to really focus on my studies, and then also um, try and have an impact on the campus because there was a lot of ignorance as it relates to race relations. There was a lot of ignorance as it relates to um, some of the institutional racism, some of the microaggressions that existed, and um, even just cultural disconnects. And so I felt like, you know what, I could be a part of the change that I wanted to see on this campus. And so I felt like, okay, I'm not going to take the easy road. I'm going to go ahead and stick with it. And that's what I did. And I'm thankful I did that because I felt like my time at Taylor, the growth that I had, the development that took place has led me to every stop that I've experienced along my journey in my adulthood. Wow. Even here. Wow. So what brought you to Iowa then? Yeah, great question. So, (laughs) um, once I graduated from college, I I started my career in uh, sales management. Hmm. And um, I was a sales manager at Enterprise uh, for a couple years and uh, really did well. I was killing it. And, um, you know, I, I just felt like, okay, the corporate world would be for me. But after going through it, I started to kind of, I felt like God was tugging me in a different direction and I felt like he was speaking to me and telling me that there was more that he had in store for me than just making money and having a good professional career and um, I didn't know what that meant but I started thinking and um, after a while I felt like you know what I want to have an impact on people more than I'm having right now. And the impact I'm having on people isn't necessarily one that's as influential Mm. as I felt like God would want me to have. Mm. I always felt like I wanted to be the vessel that like kingdom blessings could flow through. But I had to position myself in order to ensure that I was ready and capable of doing that. And in the position that I was in, it just wasn't going to happen. And so I then thought, okay what about higher ed? Higher ed seems like, you know, the route to go. So I started sitting down with um, some mentors of mine and a few cousins that were in the higher ed space. And um, that's when I transitioned into higher education. And I actually started working for DeVry University for maybe three years as an admissions advisor. Wow. And um, it was, you know, it was tech kind of tech and engineering type um, for-profit institution. But it was an opportunity for me to kind of Um, learn the ropes as it relates to higher education, understand how um, advising worked, understand how um, curriculum was designed and created, and um, also understand the impact that education can have on one's life. And so after, you know, being there for three years, I ended up um, transitioning from there um, to IWU on the adult side. Okay. 
Huh. And this is back in 2013. Yeah, I think it was 13. And um, it was interesting because um, at that time, I transitioned away from Derive mainly because I wanted to go to more of a traditional university um, and work. I also wanted to um, get back into the Christian environment because when you kind of have been out of it for a little while, you start to develop uh, appreciation for mm. it that you didn't have when you were in it. Mm. And um, I thought, man, it would be great to marry these two worlds, right? Like my love for higher ed, right? Because I had fell in love with higher ed at that point, but also um, my love for Christ and being, you know, in the environment that helps you continue to foster not only your own personal relationship with Christ, but also you know, other individuals' personal relationship with Christ. And so um, transitioned uh, to being a corporate representative on the adult side of National Global. And um, at that time, I was living in Indianapolis, and um, there was um, an education center on the west side. I think it's still there, off 71st and uh, Lafayette. And um, worked there as a corporate representative. And what I did was I traveled around and I did presentations at like Ivy Tech um, campuses and uh, hospitals and I would create contractual agreements and um, often articulation agreements and uh, I would try and uh, get students um, interested and excited about some of the programs that we had whether it's nursing or any of the programs and so that was fun because it helped me really it was fun but it also was interesting because I felt like it helped prepare me for what I'm doing now mm. I didn't know that at the time, but it was preparing me for teaching. Wow. And so at that time, you know, I was doing presentations and I was really honing in on my skills of just, you know, presenting and how to really um, uh, control the room may not be the right word, but just ensure that my words were having an impact on uh, the audience that was designed to receive it. And um, so I did that and... Um, I really took a liking to it. Um, however, I didn't take a liking to the travel <laughs> moving <laughs> around. And so, um, needless to say, I felt like that although I enjoyed speaking, connecting with people, presenting content, um, the travel that was needed to be successful in the job just wasn't something that I really, really enjoyed. And so I did that for um, a couple years, like two years, and then I ended up um, after that, after that transitioning to Taylor University. Mm. So I went back home, um, and I became the director of fundraising, annual fundraising. Wow! And um, that was a really, really um, exciting time for me mm. because I had an opportunity to um, come back to my alma mater, uh, connect with people that I hadn't seen in years. Mm. And it also gave me an opportunity to um, do something that I had a skill set in, but I hadn't worked directly mm. with, and that was fundraising. And, um, you know, I had been involved in uh, sales. I had been involved in, um, you know, presentations and connecting with people and sitting down, having conversations, building value for um, tangible and intangible products. However, um, fundraising was different. And uh, it required, kind of like you were saying earlier, it required us to really tell the stories mm. of students and to allow those stories to kind of take on a life for themselves. Mm. And once, you know, alum and other constituents heard those stories, 
hopefully they would be, um, the heartstrings would be tugged enough or they would be moved enough to want to donate to the university and continue the legacy. And um, so at that time, I had an opportunity to um, raise about $2.7 million annually. Wow. And um, each That's year. a lot. Yeah. You know, what <laughs> was interesting about it was um, it, sem- it seemed like a lot at the time. Yeah. But in hindsight, I realized that um, there's so much more that could be raised. <laughs> and I ex- actually exceeded that goal by $30,000 each year that I was wow. there. And um, so it was a blessing that not only the goal was met, but we were also able to do some really cool things in terms of scholarship opportunities Mm -hmm. and just provide pathways for students to um, enter into college Mm -hmm. that would have no opportunity Mm -hmm. to go to college if it weren't for these funds. Mm -hmm. That was a gratifying thing. Mm -hmm. And again... You know, as as I moved through my career, one of the things that was kind of consistent, especially when I started in higher ed, was just this idea of um, having an impact on people and students and um, being a vessel that kingdom blessings flow through. And that was kind of like my theme. That's kind of like my mission statement, mm-hmm. so to speak. That's beautiful. And so, um, you know, at Taylor and um, was doing, you know, really, you know, really well, but... Um, I was teaching part-time adjunct on the adult side and um, really loved it, really enjoyed it. In my mind, I thought, okay, 15 years from now, this is something that I really probably want to do, um, just become a full-time professor. But God had other plans, and I ended up getting a phone call from someone that knew I was teaching, and um, they knew that there was a role that needed to be filled uh, here on the residential campus, and they asked if I would have interest and um, becoming a full-time faculty member. I thought, wow, <laughs> God, I, I do, but I didn't think it would happen that quickly, yeah. right? I thought it would be a few years from now, right? Yeah. 10, 15 years from now, and then I would take advantage of that. And so I uh, prayed about it, talked with my family, and um, I felt like, you know what? Let's move. The opportunity is here, and um, I feel like God opened that door for a reason. And so I took advantage of it. So in 2017, um, I transitioned uh, to IWU to become uh, the marketing professor in the business division. And um, I've been here ever since, and I've been loving it. Wow, that's incredible. I love hearing the story of your transition, the way that the Lord like used even the growing up around a Christian university. And I'm, I'm curious, like you had mentioned the wrestling of like not being um, among many other minority students. Yeah. Would you feel comfortable sharing a little yeah. bit about that experience and how you kind of wrestled through that? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's interesting because I, I talk to and I mentor students here on campus and um, I tell them, like, I know exactly what you're going through, mm-hmm. right? Not in the, you know, I, I don't want to disregard their feelings, but I'm like, I probably had it even worse because you're talking early 2000s, Taylor, in the middle of nowhere, you know, yeah. we had probably 10, maybe 10 African-Americans really? on campus. And, um, and if we're including, you know, um, individuals that came from maybe the Bahamas or, or Jamaica or different places, then maybe 25. Really? But it was a huh. very, very limited group of minorities mm. and specifically black 
and African-American minorities made it very challenging from a, mm. for a number of reasons. Um, one, from a cultural standpoint, there was a disconnect. Mm. You know, people often... My roommate was great. I had an amazing roommate. Um, I'll tell you that story here in a second. But um, people in my dorm, we I stayed... <laughs> Call it the penthouse. Mm. Um, it's the fourth floor of Sammy Morris Hall, and um, great, great guys overall, but a lot of ignorance. Mm. Um, for example, um, there were a lot of guys on that hall that had never met an African American in mm. person. Really, never. Wow. The only representation that they had of a black or African American person was what they saw on TV and what they heard from their family. And so there was a lot of ignorance that was associated with it, right? Mm. And so, um, you know, there was like this assumption that we were all the same, like mm. this monolithic group. And so, um, you know, for me, it became a goal to break down some of those stereotypes, to to teach and educate, because I felt like, <laughs> this is going to sound kind of... You know, I don't want to, like, make it seem like I'm, you know, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. or anything. But I wanted to make sure that yeah. I, could make, I could make it better for the next generation. Mm-hmm. And I knew that a lot of those individuals would go on and start their own businesses or maybe become managers at certain businesses. And if not only they have positive experiences, but if they learned something from me, that would help other minorities in the future that they were going to interact with. Mm-hmm. And so I took it very serious, even at a young age, of trying to break down stereotypes, explaining certain situations, being a part of, uh, they call it Taylor Black Men uh, uh, on campus, TBM, that was started by a fifth-year senior, and then I tried to keep it going mm-hmm. after he left. Mm-hmm. Um, and just bring it, that, that group was designed to just bring together um, the black men on campus uh, to ensure that we felt supported and uh, we understood the resources that we had mm. um, so that we could identify pathways to be successful in those environments. Mm. So um, it was very challenging at that time. Um, there were, you know, there was a lot of racial innuendos. Um, you know, there were, I remember one particular circumstance, um, maybe about four of us, um, four black guys and one white guy, um, we're hungry. And back then, you guys have good. I mean, you guys have options. <laughs> you got Chick-fil-A. You have the little, you know, Subway place. It's not Subway, but the little, you know, sub sandwich place. You have the, you know, the Asian food. And so you have all these options. We didn't have those options mm. back then. And um, particularly after a certain time frame, we just didn't have anything uh, in Upland. And so if we wanted to eat, we had to go to Gas City. And at that time, they had um, a drive through uh, restaurant that was ca- half KFC, half Taco Bell hmm. in terms of their menu. And so we were like, man, we're hungry. Let's, let's go over there and get something to eat. It was like maybe 11 or 12 at night. So we go, and um, like I said, four, four of us were black. One of, one of us was white. And um, we get probably into Gas City. Yeah, we get right into Gas City, and we get pulled over. Hmm. And um, I'll never forget it. We get pulled over, and the interesting thing when you get pulled over as a a black man, a million things run through your mind. And you, you all obviously are familiar with all 
all of the circumstances that have taken place as it relates to police brutality over the last 10 years, right? Sure. Well, we're talking 15 years ago. Mm. <laughs> so we're talking before mm. camera phones and everything else. Like, we, we had flip phones, but they were like the green screen. Mm -hmm. And so it just wasn't a lot of coverage that you can actually have to protect yourself or even record any mishaps. And so I remember thinking, okay, anything could happen. We all need to remain calm. It's late. Um, <laughs> the gentleman that was sitting in the passenger side, I was in the back. The white guy was sitting next to me. The black guy, there was another black guy that was sitting next to him, another one of my friends. Then there was a black guy that was driving, and there was a black guy in the passenger side. Well, the, the guy in the passenger side was the oldest. He actually, um, I think it was a singer at the time, um, but he was probably um, one of the more uh, vocal and outspoken so he was upset like he was from the moment we got pulled over he was upset um and so we're trying to calm him down and so the guy the police officer comes to the window you could tell the police officer was young he wasn't much older than us mm. i mean we're 21 at the time uh he's maybe 25 mm. you know he's not much older than us and so he was young. He started asking us questions, asking us where we've been, asking us uh, why we're out this late. You know, a bunch of questions that were irrelevant and ridiculous. Hmm. Um, so then he asked the driver to get out of the car. And we're like, why is he have to get out of the car? What's going on at that point? And so he begins to uh, perform a um, sobriety test on him. We're like, we haven't been <laughs> drinking. We literally just came from our dorms. We had on sweats, clearly. And um, he does the sobriety test on him. The guy in the passenger side is just upset at this point. So he makes the guy in the passenger side get out as well um, and performs the same test on him. And um, mind you, like I said, it's about midnight. Hmm. And um, so at this point, we're just kind of like, okay, let's remain calm and just get home. Mm -hmm. We can file a complaint later. Um, so he ends up, you know, obviously they passed the test because they, they hadn't been drinking, they hadn't been doing anything. So they get back in the car. Everyone's upset. We ended up not even getting anything to eat. We just turned around and went home. Mm -hmm. um, the white guy. So we get back. We're upset, but at that point we're just kind of like, kind of cracking jokes about it. And, mm -hmm. You know, uh, we're used to it at that point, which is sad. Like, mm. you know, yeah. 21, at that point, we had become accustomed to mm. unfair treatment by police officers. Um, well, the white guy is like, man, I don't know how you guys can laugh. Or, you know, he's just completely shook. And um, great. He's a great guy, too. But he literally is crying at mm. this point. He's like, I... I've never experienced anything like that in my life. That's what he says. Mm. He was like, you know, I don't know how you guys can go through life experiencing these things mm. and not have a jaded perspective or opinion mm. about people in mm. general. Like, how do you smile at people? How do you still greet people with kindness and love? And how do you, you know, uh, not have a panic attack every time you see a police officer? You know, and... Um, you know, you get really good at, you know, understanding the concept of double consciousness. Mm. 
yeah. right? Like, I'm a faculty member here, but I'm also a black man. I have to understand how those two fit together and how they work separately as well. Mm. I have to understand how my position as a black man may intimidate some people. Sure. I also have to understand their preconceived notions that people have about black men. Yeah. Right? Now, if you attach a professor to it, some of those stereotypes might dissipate, but others might pop up. And so, obviously, there's this double consciousness that exists because you're constantly concerned about that. And you get good at it after mm. a while. And at that point, at 22 or 21, however old we were, we were pretty good at understanding where we fit in society. Yeah, yeah. So, um, yeah, I mean, again, and it, to to take even take it back if if I may yeah um that circumstance every everything that everything you go through I feel like God prepares you for mm. the next journey so like any challenge I go through now I know that okay there's something in the future that's going to happen that God's preparing me now for mm. when I was 13 I was riding my bike from my home to my friend's home and we used to do that back in the day, ride bikes everywhere. Um, rode past the park. I got to my friend's house. Police drove up with their guns drawn on me. Really? I was 13. The guns drawn on me. And my friend and his mom come out on the porch. They're like, what is going on? Hmm. And um, the police officer was like, well, you fit the description of someone who, I guess, robbed somebody in the park. Hmm. And we're like, well, first of all, I'm 13. <laughs> right. You, you know what I mean? Like, right. I fit the description. The guy was like six foot. I mean, I was maybe five, six, or seven at 13. Mm. Um, the guy was six foot. You know, he wasn't on a bike. You know, but at that point, they had made up in their mind that I fit the description. Mm. So after them asking me questions and obviously my friend's mom talking to him, they ended up kind of chilling out and leaving. Um, we obviously followed filed a complaint and followed up with it, and those those uh, police officers got reprimanded. But um, nevertheless, I was thirteen. Right, right. So fast forward to twenty one, twenty two. I already understand how this works, mm. and so it's just one of those things where mm. you know I think that ultimately I felt like I was on that campus, mm. Taylor's campus, for a reason because I felt like. Mm. I could be a part of the change that I wanted to see, mm. and I couldn't complain about it if I didn't want to be a part of that change. It is a burden. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. They call it a cultural taxation or the black tax, mm. right? Like the burden you have to carry to be black and trying to create change at the same time. But, but it's necessary because if someone didn't do it before me, I wouldn't be where I am. Yeah. And so it's almost comes with the territory it's necessary to do mm. and so um yeah so that that obviously shaped my my formative years and, and my perspective mm. on kind of um how things um operate at times now mm. fast forward where i'm at now um again i could go to an hbcu and, and teach yeah i could go to a public school and teach i could go somewhere where i wouldn't have some of the challenges that I might experience at a small, predominantly white Christian institution. But I love the institution. 
I see a lot of potential in this institution. I think it could be amazing for students. I know institution like this one did an amazing things for me. And um, I want to be a part of making it better. Hmm. And so kind of fast forward, like I said before, me doing what I did at Taylor, being a part of the change that I wanted to see, helped prepare me to do the same thing here. Hmm. And so it's all a cycle. Hmm. Wow. Thank you for your vulnerability. I respect I respect your, your strength and your insight. And I think um, we have a lot... Uh, we have we have a lot to grow into as a predominantly white community um, and I'm thankful for your presence here for sure thank you thank you for saying that you mentioned that you spend a lot of time pouring into students here on campus um, and I've seen you directly pouring into students I know you've poured into me what um what does that look like for you, for, for the student body, and, and how do you, like, see your impact? And um, and then a follow-up to that would be, like, what would your advice, as you consider your story, as you consider the experiences that you have been through, walked through, wrestled with, um, being a student at Taylor, what would your, um, kind of what, like, if you sat down with me and were to tell me, like, this is what you need to know as a minority student, like, Here's, here's some information, here's some advice, what would that be for students? In terms of advice for students, let me say advice for students in general, and then I'll get to you. Yeah. advice for minority students. Yeah. Advice for students in general is um, start with the end in mind. Hmm. So if you want to become something in the future, hmm. start with the end in mind. Mm. Start preparing for what it is you want to be. Mm. Like if you envision being whatever it is you envision being, start preparing for that now. Because you'll look back and say, ah, a lot of what I am now was basically laid on the foundation of what I was working on 10 years ago. And that's true for me. That's true for anyone um, who has progressed in their career. Um, In terms of students of color, minority students, um, don't allow your challenges to define you. Mm. Don't allow um, the difficult circumstances that you go through to jade your opinion or perspective on life. Mm. Because the experiences you go through with people say more about them than they do about you. And the energy that you need to persevere past those things um, can't be taken up by giving those individuals too much attention. Mm-hmm. And so you speak up, you speak out, you know, like our students were doing today. You speak up, you speak out, um, you push back against racist rhetoric and institutional racism. Um, you speak truth to power, you do those things, um, but you also don't allow it, don't, you don't allow that to define you or, or hinder you from becoming all that God has for you to be. I wanted to kind of um, close with just talking about maybe more like 
your hopes and dreams for for now, for the present time, as well as for the upcoming years. As we've as we've heard some of your story and bits and pieces of your heart through the work that you do and the ways that you pour into people and the way you live, um, what are what are some of your hopes and dreams for the for the present time as well as for the future? In in terms of race, in terms of developing this community, in terms of even just your own personal dreams pertaining to your hobbies. <laughs> okay, another loaded question. You're full of those loaded you know, questions. You know it. <laughs> um, yeah, so, okay. Um, me personally, um, I love my family. I want to see my family become all that God has in store uh, for them to be collectively as a family and individually. Mm. Um, personally, I want to continue to be a vessel that kingdom blessings flow through. That's my mission. Um, it's not going to change. It's been the same for several years now. And so whatever that looks like, right, like that might look different 10 years from now. But regardless of whatever I'll be doing, that is the goal. Mm. Being the vessel that kingdom blessings flow through. Um, in terms of the university, Iowa, um, is my hope that the university will, one, continue being a Christ-like institution, but one that's willing to extract the deficiencies and the institutional racism yeah right um, that exist and extract it and be able to scrutinize it yeah do away with it and move forward being better mm. and um, I think that it's tough at times to admit that there is institutional racism that exists within a Christian institution, mm. right? That seems like an oxymoron. It seems like, right, like, no, there's no way. Yeah, there's way. Yeah. <laughs> there's definitely way, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and yeah. we have to be honest and we have to be willing to hold the university accountable because holding a university accountable is the purest form of love. Mm. You don't hold people accountable that you don't love. Mm. If you don't love them, you just let them do whatever they want to do and ignore them. Mm. But when you love them, you hold them accountable. Mm. And um, students are holding the university accountable. I hope that faculty uh -huh. will hold the university accountable. I hope executive leadership holds the university accountable. I hope everyone will continue to hold the university accountable to, until it becomes everything that... We say it is because I believe it can be. Yeah. I believe it can be. This is a yeah. wonderful place. This is a great institution. I love this institution. Mm. I love it. Mm. But I also love it enough to scrutinize it. Mm. Mm. Um, in addition to that, though, in terms of the, <laughs> the country or the world, um, same thing. Mm. Right? The purest form of love is accountability. And if our Constitution says what it says, then that needs to be for everyone. Mm. 
And if it's not, then we need to ensure that it, it is. Mm-hmm. And so being able to work together to bring that to fruition, that is my hope. Mm-hmm. And um, we have to have the right leadership in place. We have to have people who, who are willing to love each, each other, are willing to put aside their egos, willing mm-hmm. to um, sacrifice, mm-hmm. right, for the better good of the future. Right? Like sometimes you have to sacrifice your own maybe best interest mm-hmm. or even your privilege mm-hmm. for the betterment of others. Mm-hmm. And if you're willing to sacrifice your own privilege, if you're willing to sacrifice um, your own best interest at times for the betterment of others, man, we could be an amazing place mm-hmm. in this world, mm-hmm. this country. Right? So mm-hmm. that is uh, what my hope well professor Payne it's been such an honor to have you on this podcast it's been beautiful to hear glimpses of your story um I'm I'm hoping listeners that you glean some wisdom that you can leave listening this podcast with greater insight as well as things to ponder things to become curious about um it's important that that we adhere to these things that Professor Payne is, is, is talking and alluding to because ultimately they're biblical and, and that's the heart of the Father. And so thank you for, um, for just exemplifying the heart of the Father through, through your words today. I'm really thankful. Hey everyone, thanks for tuning in. Look for updates on our Instagram page, Iowa Wildcat Chats, and we hope to see you tuning in next week.